This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. You ready? Ready. Guys, welcome to the Full Blast Podcast. I'm Jeff Fader, and before we get into it with Ilya Alexiev, a.k.a. Slavic Smith, we got to take care of a little bit of business. I want you to know that I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you because you're going to fix your business. And one of the ways you're going to fix your business is you're going to get yourself a website. If you go to AK Interactive slash Full Blast, you can fill out the paperwork, get 10% off of a website. You, and then AK Interactive, that's uh, Andreas Kalani is going to get you squared away. Now, if you don't have a website, if you already have a website and you just want to get it fixed up a little bit, what you can do is he will consult. He's a, cons- a consultant too. He'll fix you. He'll give you some ideas. Maybe you know how to do your website fine. You need, you need to just kind of like get it squared away. He's going to give you some information. He can be your consultant. Let's say you want to do a booth at a convention, like you want to do the Blade Show or something, and you need that kind of like the tabletop stuff and the signage. He does that too. So go go to akinteractive.com slash full blast. Get yourself some help because Andreas Connie is going to do it for you. The next thing is... Let's talk about a little wax, Axe Wax. Axe Wax is an all-natural food-safe wax for your axe, your handles, your hammers, and your steel, your chef knives. It's great stuff, and it's all-natural, so there's no petroleum byproducts, no icky stuff is going to leave a residue on your stuff, especially if you're making culinary knives, and it's nice to be able to tell your, your customers that you got something that ain't going to have anything on it that's going to make you icky. So go to... Axwax.us, put in promo code FULLBLAST10 and get yourself 10% off all of your Axwax. They're great guys. Definitely give it a try. Give it, get a couple pucks and give it a try. Put it on whatever you want. You can put it on your boots too. Put it on your leather. Put it on whatever you want. Axwax has been great to this podcast. Thanks again, guys. I'm very honored. I'm very honored to have Ilya Alexiev on this podcast. That's, that's Slavic Smith. He is an extraordinary bladesmith and sword maker. He's an incredible painter, a great drawer. He just won the 2020, uh, the, the 2021 Blade Show Sword of the Year, the Heretic. Ilya, how are you? I'm doing very well. Well, uh, does your uh, Tinder read the same way you compliment me over here? <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about, Tinder? Come on, man. I don't, I'm, not, I'm a married man. Come on, man. I've been, well, I've been married. Doesn't prevent from, anything anywhere, anytime. I've been, I've been uh, married. I've been married since you probably were were were, were hanging out in, in Russia as a little boy. Well, well, uh, it could be interpreted in many ways. <laughs> uh, but thank you, thank you very much for your compliments. Uh, it. Coming from you, it sounds impressive. Uh, sitting in my drawer, uh, none of my degrees, none of my awards actually look impressive when they're under a uh, quarter inch of dust. But when someone on a podcast says that, it actually sounds fairly uh, reputable, so to speak. Now, uh. this you, what you just said makes a lot of sense to me in the sense that as uh, I was just doing, I was uh, actually watching, you have a uh, YouTube channel with uh, Matt Stagmer. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, listen to the episode uh, I did with Matt Stagmer. They're partners at That Works. They have a YouTube channel called That Works, and they make a lot of great projects, and it's a lot of fun. 
What interests me about what you just said is when you were doing your recent video in regards to the swords that you brought to Blade Show, including the Heretic, which was the winner of the Sword of the Year Award, you were talking about the fact that that sword, which is, I mean, it's just extraordinary. It's, it's I mean, mosaic, mosaic Damascus and inlays and engravings and rubies. And you said that you, it was inspired by a lot of readings you were doing about Nietzsche. And I'm not a Nietzsche scholar, but I just kind of like did a little bit of reading on Nietzsche recently. And, and I'm fascinated with the fact that you said that your stuff doesn't really mean anything. Because that is kind of like one of the tenets of Nietzsche, right? The, the Putting the value on these things, wouldn't you say? Um, no, not necessarily. So uh, I would have to correct you only just slightly. You okay. kind of made the right interpretation in the wrong direction, okay. saying that that sword was inspired by Friedrich no, you said you said it was based on the writings. Uh, it, okay, so let's, let's think about it very carefully. Okay. And uh, thinking slowly actually pays off long term. So uh, the way this sword came about is someone wanted to buy another sword from me, but that sword was sold, uh, a dragon katana. And I said, look, uh, I have a a sister sword planned for the Inquisitor. It's going to be nicer. There's uh, already meteorite-based mosaic Damascus in it, and this one is going to be the heretic. And the guy said, sure, down payment immediately sent five minutes later, so he got me by the balls. And I couldn't back up. Now, uh, and then I started thinking about the idea, what is heresy to begin with? See, heresy is not just saying, well, this religion sucks, screw it. But that's that's not heresy, that's apostasy. So leaving the religion. Heresy is an unorthodox novel interpretation within a given field of knowledge. Uh, It usually is interpreted as religion, doesn't have to be religion. Uh, a, for example, a heresy within the political sphere of a liberal democracy is a uh, illiberal democracy. That is, you can have a dictator within a democratic society. That is a heretical idea. Okay. Right. Right. And the greatest heretic of all, up to date, within the uh, Western uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, was Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, and. The way we can see it is because he's he was the most Christian person while criticizing Christianity. He noticed something within the ethos of our Judeo-Christian ethics and aesthetics, which he called slave morality. And the slave morality works the following way for Nietzsche. Uh, you have all those propositions. The hero is someone who sacrifices himself for others. The wealthy people are sinners unless they give a lot of their money to the poor. Well, right. that morality is just a whole bunch of cowardly, untalented people who are kind of losers telling excellent individuals, what well, you have to help us, otherwise we'll kill you. Right. Right? So okay. And Nietzsche said, no, that is, and uh, that what we perceive as charity, morality, it's actually... It, it's the opposite of morality because it never had any good motivation within it. It always has the idea of this extra talented, extra beautiful person has to destroy themselves so that we are marginally better, or at least we don't feel bad about ourselves. 
right? So that would, so Nietzsche reconstructed a version of uh, and system of ethics, and we're talking about ethics as the idea of a good life. We're not talking about ethics as what is the right or wrong thing to do in its pejorative sense, but what is in the grander scheme of things, in the way you structure your life as a work of art, uh, what is the right way of living? And he said, well, the only people who are actually capable of uh, a true moral gesture are the super rich, so to speak, or super talented, or super people who are granted superhuman sensibility of the world. Uh, and it's actually easy to understand. We're still talking within the what Nietzsche thinks about thought, um, about the way of life, so to speak. And imagine that. Like, it is very easy uh, for someone who is middle class or poor to say Jeff Bezos has to spend a lot more of his money on taxes or more of his money on charity. Why? Because they're potential recipient of that charity, the potential recipient of those taxes, right? Right. But so you cannot really say that they're making a moral or an ethical claim because, of course, they redefine the middle class to be about $50,000 above what they get paid. So they have that little buffer room to get a pay increase over the next five years. But they really say, well, I don't have to do anything, but you over there have to help me and other people. But I'm primarily talking about other people. So that's the slave morality, right? And Nietzsche thinks, well, when people like Jeff Bezos, and we're using him as an example. Of course. Actually voluntarily gives money that he earned off of creating a giant, giant company, an empire. Doesn't matter how he structures the uh, employment uh at a particular facility because that's managers anyway that's not him like he actually has nothing to benefit from from that so he's the only one in this structure who we can for sure for sure say is committing a truly moral act so with Nietzsche is a true moral ethical act is made by someone who is like Napoleon like uh, Elon Musk, like uh, Einstein, like Tesla, are brilliant luminaries of our time within the given discipline of either business making, science, art, uh, statecraft, who have everything already uh, in life they need, and they still choose to devote some part of their life for others. So true act of generosity can only come from a position of power okay and that's the heresy and the problem is uh within the christian theology it used to be interpreted the other way around the the issue is uh within the because we're still dealing with uh medieval uh judo-christian traditions right about the sort uh the problem is that the figure of christ is he was god so once again the ideal of behavior is more like Jeff Bezos is more like Tesla who sacrificed himself for others rather than a poor person who is not divine so and that's what Christ, uh, Nietzsche notices he notices there a greater influence or a more useful way of looking at it through the eyes of Greek pantheons and Greek ethics of balance and glory uh, the passage from the gay signs or the happy signs, I think it's uh, 328 or 358. The numbers are always blurry. Is I uh, He says, I have no envy 
for the mountain slopes I dream of have not been treaded on by another man. Right? So it's a be a leader, not a follower. And okay, the, okay, go on. I was gonna say, how does this relate to how it inspired you to make the sword the heretic? Because wait, wait. Because when you were on the because when you were in the video, you said that it was number one. The sword was you built it on spite, which I loved. I love doing things out of spite. I think that's the greatest. And number two is you said you had been doing a lot of reading of Nietzsche, and and that's one of the one of the inspirations towards this sword. Okay, all right. Uh, I will want to acknowledge at this point in the podcast that what I wanted to do in the previous tirade is to basically lay the general compass of okay. what Friedrich Nietzsche's project is about. Okay. Uh, one can say that Friedrich Nietzsche, and a lot of people misunderstand him, that he wa- wanted a very cruel ethics where only the strong are uh, moral and the weak are not. But we're talking about a man who saw a carriage driver beat a whore, tired horse to death and he flung himself with tears to protect the dying animal, right? So we're talking about someone who is incredibly sensitive to the suffering of others. So, like, let, let's keep that intact, okay? okay? Now, first of all, uh, when I said I made mosaic, uh, the mosaic Damascus blade, before I had the plan for the sword fully in my mind, uh, I read a comment on YouTube, and people shouldn't read comments on YouTube, but it's kind of part of my job to read those <laughs> comments, right? And someone said uh, in a response video to the Inquisitor, oh, but I've never seen Ilya make complex mosaic Damascus. Well, the problem with that is I don't find mosaic Damascus complex. In fact, I find mosaic Damascus the easiest form of Damascus possible. Right? So that will take some explaining to do. I will repeat it because let it sink in. Mosaic Damascus, in my opinion, as an artist, as someone who's educated in the history of art and how to make art, is the easiest form of Damascus one can produce. Now, what do I mean by that? And that will lead to spite. Okay. Uh, let's play a thought experiment. Do you like thought experiments? I love thought experiments. What I'm okay. with you, whatever you want. Now, just before you say, Go on. my job here is not to match your intellect. <laughs> so don't, I'm not, no, I am no, not no, a no, scholar. No, like, I, what I, I'm going to do is I'm going to try to make this interest, the interesting podcast to listen to, but I am all in for a thought okay. experiment. So all the listeners now, right? Unless yeah. you're driving, close your eyes and okay. imagine a situation, okay. right? Imagine a uh, that I have a... OCD child, about seven years old, who is fairly autistic. Okay. Right? Okay. So, but they have one uh, savant talent. Okay. It's the only talent that this person has. Okay. Right? Okay. And that is they execute instructions very precisely and very truthfully. Right? Right. Can you... It's not a hard person to imagine because... Okay. Uh, I used to work at a special needs school back in Florida, and a lot of people with uh, mental disabilities are exactly like that. Okay. Right? So okay. imagine a seven-year-old who is, the only thing they're really good at socially is following instructions, if those instructions are sufficiently detailed. Okay. Right? Now, uh, imagine if I leave 
in the morning on the table and instructions. Here are the bars, some are 15 and some are whatever, whatever, whatever. You have to clean them up and tack weld them like this using this MIG welder. And I leave an instruction how to use MIG welder. Okay. The child who never did any blacksmithing will do it because they're good at following instructions. Right. Right? Right. Okay, the next set of instructions I say, okay, turn on the forge like this, wait a certain amount of time till the internal temperature looks like that or a thermometer says that's how it is, and stick it in. And then so on and so forth until those pieces are welded. Like, stick it under the power hammer, make sure you can use a kiss block so it only forge welds but doesn't right. blow it out. Right. And then I say, well, now turn it 45 degrees, uh, draw it out, be careful not to smash it, so on and so forth. The child will, because as I set up the thought experiment, will do it correctly. Right. And then I continue going uh, with that person, never actually touching any of the material, through the process of making mosaic Damascus, turning it on 45, smashing it up, so on and so forth, right? right. Cleaning it, uh, then cutting it, then stacking it. And at the very end, the uh, autistic savant seven-year-old will be able to produce a mosaic Damascus billet that is exactly like mine. I agree with you a thousand percent. Right? Like Yes. Because that's what mosaic Damascus is, just yeah. following instructions. Right. Now, consider the following. Let, let's uh, look at the... Uh, okay, so you heard that I value the Japanese blade tradition. Yes. Right? It's not necessarily that I value the tradition. I value a very interesting cultural phenomenon that... Bladesmithing was interpreted in Japan since the Heian period through the eyes of the literati calligraphic tradition. And that means, if you know anything about watercolor or ink painting, that every brushstroke will be visible in the end result. So you're not covering your brushstrokes, you're exposing the first one and the last one, and they're okay. simultaneously present, right? Okay. With just random pattern Damascus, you should be able to see the competence of the hammer blows from the first to the last one that the smith imparted on the material. That is simply correct, right? I agree with you. Okay, so it's more like a piece of watercolor painting than a mosaic. That's why mosaic Damascus is a mosaic. Uh, now, a seven-year-old autistic savant will not be able to exactly copy the given instructions and produce the same type of very simple random pattern Damascus that I would because my embodied life experience is different. My intent, my mood, my inspiration, my level of distraction or my level of competence is substantially different from that of our thought experiment individual, and therefore it is harder to make it of quality because more factors go into making, let's say, random pattern mosaic Damascus, uh, if you know how to read it, and every single one, the hammer force, consistency of the hammer strike, so on and so forth, um, there's a greater number of factors, all of which are on a scale from idiot too competent, so to speak. So there are more ways of messing up. And to me, uh, when I look at a traditional 
Japanese katana blade, they're incredibly complex, even though basically they're random pattern, pattern welded steel. But they're more complex to me because the artist had to satisfy a very sophisticated, high-class, literate system of aesthetic references that where every single stroke is interpreted as if it is a calligraphic move within the material. Okay. Now, that uh, this is fascinating to me because I've had, you know, I've had a lot of conversations in regards to I particularly, you know, have my question in regards to, you know, you and I both have a little bit, I mean, you have more artistic, you know, art school training than I do, but when I went to art school and or I took I was an art major and we did a lot of investigation. I got to the point when I started to make knives, I didn't feel like most knives are art. I correct. didn't believe I, I that is God, correct. Then the podcast is over. I well, honestly no, believe. Okay, that, so that, that's by definition true, right? That that is by definition true simply because of the scientific fact. If we're talking about uh, art, that is it is uh, to a degree. When we delve into the territory of exceptional skill or mastery or level of inspiration or talent, we are saying that it is within the 80th percentile or 95th, like whatever, right? So that means we are dealing with only 10% or 5% or 1% of all things within the given uh, class of objects. It is a kind of a trick of language uh, that forces us to say that most of anything are not really art. Right. Like, most paintings are not really art, even though every single one of them is intended to be art. Right. I agree with you. So, so let's just get back to the, the story. You were saying, so, yeah, the guy on the YouTube said, you know, you don't make pattern uh, mosaic Damascus, and that's one of the, the, the reasons why you made the heretic. See, I would not be able to make a subtle truthful attempt at uh, a Rembrandt out of spite, I wouldn't be. And I would not be able to make a subtle, truthful attempt at Gassan Sadakazu out of spite, because they require a certain level of competence, preparedness, a certain level of concentration. And finesse. And finesse, and talent, so on and so forth. Right. But Mosaic Damascus I can make out of spite all day. (laughs) Right? So, like, all day. In fact, all I have to do is have enough decent instructions and send them off to China and they will make the exact pattern I would. I agree with you. I agree agree with you. And so the the spike level is uh, multi-tiered. First of all, yes, I can make it. I just don't think it's complex. And here's why it's not complex, because I can make it out of spike. If it would if it would actually be complex, I would not have been able to make it out of spike alone. I think you're right. I think you're 100 right. I've always felt that a lot of a lot of these, I, I see. I, I usually refer to knife making as stringing together a lot of. Well, I have tricks. to correct you. I, I'm not a knife maker to begin with. Like, like I have to correct you there. So, like, you might talk about knives, but the closest things uh, to a knife maker I might be. I'm a sword maker, but I prefer to like I have a painting background. So that's why engraving is yeah. easier for me than other stuff because I have a painting and sculpture background. Well, let's. I want to get back to. I want to get to that in a second. But what I wanted to know is what your, you know, this this particular sword, the heretic. How did, besides the spite, 
How did Nietzsche's writings influence you on how you went about making that sword? Okay. All right. So we're finally down to the meat of the bone. Yeah. And if I got you, you would have been like uh, 70 years ago in my home country, you would have been executed as a degenerate intellectual for asking the right <laughs> not, questions at not, the right time. Not, you'd, been, you'd have been uh, executed much faster than me. Trust yeah, me. They would have had yeah, you hung up way yeah, faster than me. Come on. That's man. true. No, I, I would have gotten a bullet in between my <laughs> eyes, which is fast and painless. You would have been sent to the gulag. So, like, you're welcome. Anyway. Um, so, uh, considering what I earlier explained about Nietzsche's thought, the only salvation for an artist or a maker is to make an honest work of art. Okay. And that is much more difficult than one would imagine. It's easy to say it. It's actually more difficult. Uh, one of the th- ways you make an honest work of art is by doing everything yourself so i engraved it myself the only thing i didn't do i didn't facet the gems but it's simply because i just do not want to get into that disease gem faceting is a disease and it's right up there with heroin addiction uh so but every every single piece of damascus i made myself every single cut I did not even use power tools on uh, removing the material for engraving. I uh, melted and soldered the silver to make the handle. I did everything myself because if I fail at any point, it becomes an honest failure. It becomes that mountain that other people don't tread upon. Even if I collapse on the slope of a rock, that is my fucking rock. No one can take it away from me. And that becomes... So that, that it's a matter of pride, right? So um, if for Nietzsche, uh, a glorious moral act can is akin to a lion walking through the jungle and expressing his magnanimity because he's already the most powerful animal, well, lions walk in prides, and pride is not a sin but a virtue when it's earned. So it's a matter of pride to create art. Because it's all yours. If it right. sucks, then you suck, but you honestly suck. At yeah. it. If you're great, then you're great and you honestly, no one can take it away from you. People can badmouth you all, all they want. That's their prerogative. Our enemies are more valuable to us than our friends because through our enemies, we uh, can hear honest criticism when the criticism is correct. Or we can at least enjoy how they squirm around in the dust. I got you. So back to the original question. This, how did the writing okay. convince so, influence the make of the sword? Okay, so you see the choice of techniques, the fact that it all had to be mine, was already mountain slow uh, to conquer. Right? All of it. On a, okay. very, on a, on a deadline. Okay. The other thing is the idea of, uh, so you see the stargazer, uh, the, uh, I introduced it. Well, the stargazer is the woman with the snake. Right. Uh, holding, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, sure. Right. Like if you pull up the pictures. Right? Yeah. I've, I've, I've looked at yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, the stargazer is to me, uh, the, um, so it, he's not, uh, well, she's not present in, 
in uh, Daspake Zarathustra, but to me she is the, so to speak, uh, the uh, proto-image of Zarathustra, because Nietzsche's writing it in the end of the 19th century, but every single court, noble court, employed a stargazer or an astrologist. Well, astrology is a defunct non-science, so to speak, but uh, at the time people didn't have anything better, and uh, a stargazer is the person who defies uh, the religious convention of the time. So in she's or- the heretic. No, that's not how. That's not heretic is an idea. What makes a person a heretic? If they inter- uh, uh, the heretic is the person who interprets the dogma in a way that is inconvenient to the establishment. That's it. All right. That's the entire. The, the, uh, Martin Luther was a heretic. Right. The, okay. It's but just, the ninety-five I mean, theses, right? That's yeah, that's yeah. heresy. The idea that someone is actually responsible for their own fate and their relationship to themselves, their soul. If you believe in God, then God. I happen to. Okay. So the question of religion in me is a very difficult question because I don't classify myself as a religious person or even a theist. But uh, almost everything I say or every value I hold is absolutely consciously a religious value. That's one of the reasons why I don't eat meat while not even being a religious person, for example. Uh, so like, it's a very complex question of full of contradictions to which we might arrive at a later point. Uh, but the idea of heresy is to me is, so if the ABS is dogma, Okay. Right? Okay. The ABS is dogma. The way things are practiced in the ABS, Mosaic Damascus is the most complex mosaic. Right? No, it isn't. I'm, I'm, by producing the sword, I'm engaging in a heresy. Right? Ah. Uh, like, already, like, I, got I'm ju- I, I don't want to reveal the whole thing, but you can, okay. like, the, the easiest way to understand, there's more to it than that, but the easiest, the, the most surface layer of understanding about the work of art is that in ABS, Mosaic Damascus is considered the most complex Mosaic Damascus. To me, it's the simple. There you go, out of spite. Enjoy. Uh, if you're uh, a knife maker, uh, like ABS, blah, 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 the general practice is, you, let's say you make a knife out of ADCRV, right? Then you send it out to an engraver. The engraver inlays it with diamonds, blah, 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 right? Returns it to you, you submit it for the competition, and you get the award for best knife, even though the most impressive work, even per square inch, is not done by you. Right? Uh, yeah. You've seen that. You know what I'm talking about. I don't know. I not. I mean, I, I, if this is a, if you're making like a, some sort, this is another thought experiment. I'm. No, it's you, not a thought experiment. I don't. That, know, that actually I mean, happens. I don't know. I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I understand. Uh, that actually happens. So, like, let's say. A, don't a, no names. We're not no, saying names. A general master smith or JS makes a knife. It's a decent knife. No one can take it away. from but sends it out, and all the engraving, the diamonds, the inlay, blah, 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 is done by someone else. They get it back and submit it as their own work. The most impressive artistic part of the work is not done by them, but they get the award. Okay. So for me, it's important that I did all the impressive. I got you. Right? I... So, like, that's, again, a heresy on to the established way. Because it's normal. It's actually normal. If, if people who make guns don't are not the ones who engrave the guns. So, like... It's it's not wrong to do that, right? I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying. I love it, and and right. I congratulate you on your victory. 
And I think that and I think that I think that winning Best in Show with the Heretic is is very poetic. Thank you. Uh, Well, also like let's not dwell dwell on this topic, but I've received at the table multiple people. Oh, who did your Damascus? Me. Oh, okay, nice. But who did your engraving? Me. Uh, but who did the handle? I did it. I did all of it. And it, those are like reputable people who are asking the question. So the fact that they're asking the question, like there's it, it only my name on the work. If it would have been someone, like someone did something else on it, I would have said like, well, this knot was made by uh, Joe Bupkis in Nebraska. I would have said that, but no. But the fact that those questions that considered polite to ask is already an indication that like that sort is truly the heretic. Yeah. I know. I, I I love it. I, I mean, I love every. I love. I love exactly what you're saying. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Go ahead. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You came to this country as a young man, very young man. Fair enough. You were you were like what ten nine something like no, that. No, I was uh, fifteen sixteen. Fifteen sixteen. Yes. You what? Why did you and your family move to the United States? So. Um... Because this question, uh, the answer to this question involves more people than just me. Uh, I will say for personal reasons, uh, but the, my mother's marriage with my father did not work out for various so on and so forth right. causes. Uh, I don't. Well, I've said it multiple times in public. So my father uh, worked or still works at the in the KGB or FSB. He's Probably the one uh, works in the same department that was responsible for American election interference. Uh, this isn't like, a, you're not joking. I'm not. Okay. I, I'm fucking not joking. Okay. Like, yeah, so uh, there you go. Uh, but, like, I- intelligence people are difficult people to deal with, and my mother is an artist who chose to abandon her. Well, she's an architect slash artist. You know, the old school architect that actually drew every, all the blueprints by hand. Right. That's her education. So she chose, uh, she had to abandon uh, her career about being an architect in order to have children. And as a result, that was a weight that was constantly on all of our shoulder. Like, sure. oh, well, if not for you, I would have been designing this blah, blah, right. blah thing, which is probably true. But uh, so for her, it was important that one of her sons was an artist and the other one was a scientist. That's exactly what she got. I actually remember, um, uh, so I used to draw from a very young age uh, and paint, but I never got anything close to, oh, this drawing uh, is nice. I'm going to put it on the fridge. What I used to get from age five, uh, four, six, is, oh, the composition on this is fucked. You should probably put the center of attention a little bit off-center of the sheet because that creates a more dynamic image. Uh, You should make sure that your lines don't look like some cowardly bastard drew it. The whole line work has to be courageous and thought out, so on and so forth. So that that was, uh, like, the constant reaction to my drawings and paintings, even as a uh, child, like, prepubescent child. From your mother? From my mother. So there was no, like, sticking of drawings on the fridge, oh, you did a good job. Right. It's like, I know you can be better. Uh, People before you 
have been better at your age at this. This is how you fix it. And next time you draw something, it has to be good. Like that's what I used to get. <laughs> that must have been a really kind of, that must have been a kind of a difficult thing to grow up with. Uh so once again, let's think about everything carefully. Whether something is difficult to grow up with doesn't mean you're not grateful for it. In fact, I'm incredibly grateful for my mother for not doing the whole, oh my God, I love you unconditionally, blah, blah. I'm actually grateful to her for instituting the, uh, what she did. Like, no, if, if you're pursuing a discipline that's, uh, conducive to excellence, like painting or science, don't do it half-assed. This is not a hobby then. The discipline commands respect. People have engaged within it, with it, wrestled with the major questions before you were born, and you owe it to other people who are participating in it to either take it seriously or don't touch it at all. I'm envious of you for one, for this reason. I'm envious of your childhood because my father was a painter, and he was still to this day, he died you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago. He's still to this day my favorite painter of all time. He was, he was known for doing these cityscapes, and they were extraordinary. And I don't have any of them, and growing up, he helped me paint, but he couldn't he couldn't express to me what I was doing right or wrong. He just kind of watched and then just walked away, or he'd grab the paintbrush and then do a couple strokes, not tell me what he did, and then it would be fixed, but I wouldn't know what happened. So I got like this, I got this very, it was very difficult for me because I wasn't able to kind of understand how I can improve as a painter. Whereas you had this driving force behind you, putting the technique behind you, which is truly a, 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 a privilege she well maybe she never actually showed me her techniques she would sign me up for every single extracurricular art activity there was and she would make sure that other people point me what's within their craft she was very careful not to try to show me to bridge the gap between a tutor and a mother right right wow. so that's a very uh, interesting thing that I just now am realizing why it's valuable because you cannot be your uh, child's teacher and a parent at the same time because there's a set of responsibilities and ethical obligations that are incommensurable, hmm. right? Uh, at least in the Western tradition. Now, it, it, once again, like if we look at Japan, most of the... Uh, so. For example, the name Gasan Serakazu is a um, art name, and his apprentice is considered his adopted son, and he would be Sadatoshi or Sadamuni, so they keep each other's uh, characters in the name, so they end up adopting each other's children uh, as apprentices because it's the craft that's permanent through time, not the person. Right. Uh, and in the sense that the... the uh, gap between a tutor and a uh, child is non-existent there, right? So if you apply for an apprenticeship in Japan, you apply to be a member of a family, right? So it's a valid approach. I'm not saying, like, one is worse than another, but within the, in a sense, the Western tradition. Uh, okay, so you don't want your uh, the teachers of your daughters or sons to date your daughters or sons, so why would you want, as a parent, to be your child's actual teacher? The bridge of family and intimate relationship 
and uh, the uh, student-teacher relationship. If we don't want it broken one way, why should we want it broken the other way? Hmm. Like, the difference. So I, I appreciate that part, too. And plus, she, uh, she might have realized that uh, it is possible. So, like, the, the hypothetical might be uh, a plausible way to explain her thinking. She might think that uh, her son would, is potentially more talented than she is, so it would be wrong for her to be the actual person to guide the individual and rather find uh, tutors who are, who are of equivalent of a greater talent to push the person up. It's possible that that is the logistic uh, decision she made. She'll never explain it to me right now. If I call her, she'll give me some crap about why am I making knives and swords and not doing other stuff like international intellectual property contracts or something like that. <laughs> But so, you know what, though? But you saying that is very interesting because it is it is a form of love. The fact that she knew that you'd be almost crippled by her as much as she can do, as opposed to finding a teacher who might be but, but pushing in a just, better direction. It is just my conjecture at this point. That's why fine. she chose it, but a, I think it's a, like the only, only plausible uh, interpretation of why she chose not to teach me herself because she was very adamant about it. Actually. It, um, like, I, I she would show me like the basic stuff. Oh, keep the brushes dry. Right. Or don't mix the watercolor paints in the watercolor paint buckets because you damage the clay. But the very basic things, not not the technique. She would always make sure that it's someone else teaching me a specific technique, even though she might know it just as well. But it's the technique. Technique. She didn't want. Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think her decision was actually, from an education and pedagogic stand, or from the pedagogic standpoint, fairly wise compared to the alternatives. That's why I'm a little bit against homeschooling, by the way. A little bit. Not because it, in itself homeschooling is bad, but because I don't think parents should be the teachers of their children because they have other uh, emotional responsibilities that might interfere. So, like, I, a little bit. I, I find, that's a, that's very fascinating. You know, on this podcast in particular, I've I've ended up interviewing so many people, so many very very talented people who are homeschooled, and you do end up. It, it is this. It's very. It's it, it's a. I think the homeschooling thing is fascinating, but I agree with you too. I definitely think that you know you should be. I agree with you. So at a young age, you're still in Russia. You're getting you're getting artist. You're getting real technical artist. Uh, teaching in Russia at, at the point where you're about to le- your family's about to leave you must have been very very proficient uh yes uh, so at the point where about I was about to leave so okay let, let's set it up I was homeschooled in Russia for my in half of my first grade or like or maybe straddling the second grade and the reason is I was not a very like I was not endowed with the best health. And uh, I used to be bullied murderously in Russia for being Asian. Like, I might not look like it, but people used to call me Chinese, all ching chong, blah, 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 and do the narrow squinty eyes thing. Uh, Up until the seventh grade in Russia. Because my father's side of the family are, like, if you cast them as the Tokyo mob, they'll fit right the fuck in. Hmm. Right? Uh, so they used to, like, tremendously. So I did not have 
the greatest time in terms of, uh, let's say, social interactions in right. school. Uh, I don't regret it that much. Uh, be, of course, like if I meet myself back then, of course I will see a miserable young motherfucker who right. uh, is upset. But like right now, I cannot say I regret it because if I were to change it, I would have probably, uh, let's say, being responsible for insurance contracts that screws old ladies out of their money or something like that <laughs> like you don't know like you cannot you cannot with honesty right, uh, right. like well, except for like the worst things possible you cannot yeah. in honesty say like i wish this part of my childhood were different right of because course. of the because of the butterfly effect right Ob of course obviously if you were molested or something like that yes like i'm excluding weird okay. like okay. the okay. worst things we got you we got you you don't don't know regrets because the, you, you, all your experiences have made you the person that you are today yeah okay. uh so that's one of the things so when people say uh like i'm waiting for youtube someone to call me out on some kind of cultural appropriation thing because first of all i might not look like it but i am actually asian and i know what uh salted horse milk tastes like in your tea for example what? uh what what is salted what is salted horse milk and why is it in your tea uh, so, if you are familiar with uh, Mongolian culture of the steppes, which is like from Russia all the way into China, that's the culture, right? Like, right. draws like from from the Ural Mountains all the way. That's the uh, Mongols used to rule all of that, and were actually part of one of the Chinese dynasty. Uh, that's one of the drinks in the steppes because if you're in the steps, most of the animals you deal with are usually uh, horses because they're faster than yaks or cows or whatever, right? Or deer. So when you drink, you drink horse milk because it has protein, and you salt it because that's how people have been doing it before, and it kills some of the bacteria, right? So you put roast, uh, salted horse milk in your tea, and in, actually in Mongolia... The tea you often drink is very, very thick. It has more caffeine in it than Red Bull. And uh, it's salted and has salted butter in it. Huh. Like, so I, I know I know the taste of all of that stuff. And I'm waiting for an accusation of uh, cultural appropriation because, A, first of all, I'm Asian and arguably more Asian than any American who was born in America. First of all, because I actually have been there and have part of the culture. And I'm currently a uh, participating member of the Japanese culture in that as soon as COVID ends, I'm supposed to uh, continue my swordsmith apprenticeship uh, like, like three months there, three months here, blah, 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 blah. Like, I'm not going to name names because if someone chooses their mind, uh, changes their mind, uh, I end up being an idiot. Yeah. But, like, like, I'm supposed to be a contributing member of a ongoing conversation amongst artists that goes back 1,000 years, right? So that's, like, I'm waiting for that stuff. Like, because it's... The poisonous part of American politics is that Americans tell immigrants how uh, not uh, <laughs> Asian or not black they are. Right. Well, just to let you know, if just to let you know, we found we did some DNA testing, and it turns out that we have a little Mongolian in our family too. Everyone very does. small, Everyone very does. very small. Oh, you yeah. you think you think so? Well, two thirds of the population have it. Wow. wow. Two thirds of the world population have it. Wow. 
Oh, why, why, why? Because the Mongols, like, ruled... Like, look, you go all the way from China, right, where the Mongols, like Genghis Khan, uh, were, like, raping and pillaging. People who disagreed, people who agreed with him, he actually gave protection to all the way to, like, East Germany, right? And consider that genetic marker spreading out through immigration, time, the age of discovery, so on and so forth. Of course, like, two-thirds of the world population would have it. And then down south from the um, uh, Safavid Iran, right, which is Safavid Iran happens after uh, Timur Lane, all the way south going through Iran, uh, then into Iraq, into Arabia, down uh, through the Maghreb, which is the no- northern coast of Africa, Mediterranean. All that genetic marker uh, we of the Mongols will be carried over. Yeah, like tremendous. And consider the uh, the impact of the Silk Road and the uh, the mating practices of merchants, so on and so forth. Like, yeah, you. Have, so we're like of the world are gonna have it. So we're like brothers, you and me. Yeah, sure. Why not? Like, yeah. I'm not ready for that kind of brotherhood, but sure. That's fine. No, but just like <laughs> you know, deep down in our genetics, you know, there's a kind of a combination. There's a connection there. I, I feel it. I feel it with you, Ilya. Uh, just don't don't talk about it when we're in the same bathroom stall. <laughs> you got, uh, don't worry. I never talk to anybody in the bathroom stall. You don't do that. I'm from New York. I know. Uh, I know better than that. You don't oh, talk I to anybody in the bathroom. I, I struck up conversations. Looking nice today, huh? <laughs> All right, so back to it. Fifteen-year-old, fifteen-year-old Ilya, and his family moves to the United States. All right. Now, you moved to Florida. Yep. That it's... must have been quite a culture shock. Yes, it is. The first thing, the, the two things that shocked me the most. One is because I arrived in the beginning of summer, and the air felt like a warm, wet towel spec. Like, what, how do these fuckers live here? That's the first one. Second one is no one walks outside in Florida where I moved to. Like, the streets exist, but it's like it's unoccupied. Yeah. Right? So that was the other thing. How do these human beings interact with each other? Like, it's impossible. And then I went to high school in America, and that was... Probably the most, not the most representative high school, but everything felt plastic. Everything felt like a facade of uh, humanity being microsampled in one building. So it's not. It must have been. It must have been an incredible. I mean, I can't imagine. Grow, I mean, I don't know if did you speak English by the time you got to. Uh, so okay, let's do this. So I had a terrible Russian accent when I got here. I knew, like, I knew most of the vocabulary one would need to succeed academically, but not necessarily most of the vocabulary one would need to succeed in social. Right. But I had a horrible Russian accent. Problem with that Russian accent was there was a Russian British accent. See, right? I don't, I don't see that as a negative. Mm, so. It is a negative when you are just moving into 10th grade, <laughs> you don't know anyone, and imagine how to someone who speaks in a relatively upper-class Russian-British accent, which is more Russian than British, but doesn't matter, Yeah. Uh, hearing uh, American 
diverse, let's put it like that, slang that always appears very aggressive because it's usually devoid of any intellectual spark whatsoever. <laughs> uh, in a condition where everything appears to begin with like a plastic facade covered with the remnants of yesterday's pizza grease. <laughs> so is the bullying worse in Russia or in Florida? So it was worse in Russia, but the uh, bullying... So I made a decision. when I, I knew that all social interactions, uh, schools, uh, psych wars, prisons, military, monasteries will have a degree of bullying greater or less, because that's the nature of those sorts of uh, institutions, right? You place people uh, in a relatively strict environment with arbitrary rules that, and those individuals somehow fit a similar demographic, right? So I know bullying would happen. So I know what bullying is from my previous experience, so I said, you know what? No one knows me here. I can in fact, be the scariest person in this new aquarium. So what did you do to establish that? Well, first of all, the fact that I'm a foreigner, and foreigners are always suspicious because their social cues are not necessarily interpreted as correctly by the new environment. So like that immediately created a degree of being uncanny to begin with. Even if I'm from the, uh, from the start at the bottom of the totem pole, no one knows how fast that person moves either laterally or up. Uh, the other thing is I, would, I was never, ever shy of picking a fight. The only conditions for fights were... The fight is happening right now, not after school, right fucking now. And whoever loses is the one who goes to detention. And I would always make sure. So uh, let's say uh, the football team kids who probably at their age of 16 or 17 were already six foot one would start shit with me. I would, in fact, make sure it's audible to everyone else around me that you have your last warning, otherwise things will happen. And then, if the warning was not uh, heard out, I would make, make sure that it's in front of an adult to walk up to them and smack them on the back of the head as hard as I could and just sit down calmly in my seat. That's it. So there's a trick to that. First of all, the danger is that I did uh, physically attack someone in front of an adult. Right, so the danger is that they'll report. Uh, the upside is it's in front of a person whose responsibility it is if something bad happens. So they are my guarantor of, let's say, uh, security to a certain degree. Right? And never underestimate the power of shock and fear. Uh, that is, if someone who is... Uh, 135 pounds is capable of instilling, even for a moment, uh, fear and confusion onto someone who is 210 pounds, right? That person is probably not the individual to mess with. But at this point, this is not making you, this is not making things easier for you in school. Oh, it was totally making things easier for me. It was? 100%. Why is that? Well, 
consider the following. What ha what do you need to do if you somehow end yourself up uh, end up in prison? I'm not going to pretend like I know, nor will I repeat something I heard so, in a movie. So, you sacrifice probation, but you probably need to establish yourself as either a member of an already existing gang that has a foothold in this prison, right? Or find the weakest person and make sure to signal to the rest that you're fully capable of distributing violence based on arbitrary decision making. So this meant this mentality is is what is is is, is kind of keeping you afloat in 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 high school. Oh, also my academic success, like mathematics, was incredibly easy for me. Like I started out, I landed in the in the United States. Couple months pass, I get like signed up for high school, and uh, they gave me uh, what do you call it? The stupid test where the aptitude. Yeah, that's the word, aptitude test. And I'm already ready for calculus one, right? The problem is there's a requirement that you have to take algebra no matter what, right? So I'm simultaneously in Calc 1, uh, AP, uh, all calculus is AP, AP trigonometry, and in algebra 1 and 2 in the same semester, okay. right? So my academics, uh, academic success, like, I would... I won a poetry competition in a language I barely speak because, like, my vocabulary written out is fairly decent in the United States. Because back in Russia, I was the um, uh, regional champion in poetry reading, regional champion in mathematics. That is when your school forces you to be in a mathematics and physics team to compete against the school in an entire equivalent to a state. Right, for uh, where school forces you to compete in uh, painting. So I was a cha like champion in the first, second, or third place in either one of those regionally, continuously. Right. So like I didn't have problems with academics. Uh, the only problem was with academics is when teachers would catch me in America reading a book that's totally unrelated to class uh, while I was sitting there. And uh, the problem I was having is that <clears throat> apparently Americans grade everyone on a curve in school, which I don't understand. And that that's actually where a lot of garbage uh, garbage thinking comes from, because the person who sets the curve is the bastard, right? Like Jeff Bezos. <laughs> how, <laughs> da how, how dare this person get an A, because, like, I'm not, I, I can't get an A. So if they only not try as hard and get a C, my, uh, my D will turn into a B, like that kind of garbage, right? So I had problems there because... While reading a uh, book that was totally unrelated to the class, I was setting the curve, and people did not like that. But uh, the fact that I already made sure from week two to establish a reputation of someone who is not afraid of engaging in violence prevented a lot of stupid stuff. I did not make many friends, though. I have to I'm, say. I'm feeling that. <laughs> I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Like there's, I feel like there's a there's too there's so much strategy involved in your high school you well, know, your transition. Well, I, like if you talk to Matt, I'm like I constantly uh, am thinking in those terms. Like if I make this move, what are the right. possible other moves? Is that a is that a Russian thing or is that like? Because I know chess is such a huge part of society. Is that? 
So maybe, uh, I don't think it is a Russian thing, but I definitely know that it's a thing that develops in the mentality of people who or whose parents grow up under an authoritarian regime. Hmm. Consequences, understanding consequences. Understanding consequences, understanding that no matter what it is, it's a game. And I'm not talking about play, I'm talking about a game. There's a possibility of moves, and at any point, uh, there will be a move made against you. Consider the following, right? Consider it. Do I have to close my eyes again? I'm happy to do it. No, 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 no. Okay, okay. okay. Consider if you live in a society where the very... uh, If you say, well, maybe, you know, this leader was not quite right about this economic policy, and then two days later, in the middle of the night, uh, black cars show up at your doorstep with the headlights off and just take you away. Uh, It's usually about three to five o'clock in the morning when you're the most drowsy, they just take you away, you're never to be seen again. Consider what that does to the entire national character of uh, a country. Consider how people pay attention to what they say, how they pay attention to who they date, who they choose to love, because all of a sudden love stops being a moment of divine inspiration and becomes a strategic choice. In society, all of a sudden, uh, artistic expression becomes uh, even more subversive because more things are considered subversive. And then, from the beginning, uh, the moment you touch a canvas, you are uh, someone who is already under the suspicion of the state or culture right. at large. And consider how much state like that permeates the thinking of individuals where as Marx or Engels might say, the state withers away, but the oppression remains in the uh, in the hands of the people. This part, second part, is probably is actually my addition, but it's the the uh, the panopticon as uh, I think Bertrand Russell uh, Bentham as Bentham uh, describes it is imprinted in your mind to the point that there doesn't need to be anyone in the panopticon power to watch you. Okay, so here's the question. You, you I, I'm, this is this fascinating. The concept of strategy and and the worrying about you know the black cars coming and people being taken away. No, no I was not worried. No, 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 consider, no, consider no, the, the type of thinking that I, it after seven years it. creates. I get I, that. I understand. What I'm trying to set up is how does you, you looking from that you know whatever that mindset you have growing up in in Russia. How does that change you when you're in the United States, and how does that? How are you different now? Because obviously well, you're not as. Okay, you're not well, as... I have to say that it actually prepared me very well to what's going on now with social media. <laughs> Go ahead, explain it. Well, consider the following, right? So uh, you have enough people who have said something that is a little bit off color, a little bit like risque, and all of a sudden the entire social structure collapses on, right? Okay. 
You, you know what I'm talking about. I Everybody know. You say something and then the, the concept of cancel culture or people turning on you because you – I understand what you're saying. Yeah, okay. they preemptively turn on you because right. they're the ones who said the same thing. Correct. So they turn on you so that no one pays attention to what they say. Based said. on social right. virtue, virtue signaling, based on yeah, yeah, this yeah, perceived concept right. of, of of righteousness. I understand what you're oh, saying. Yeah, I, I, yeah. yeah. And, like, and I'm uh, – the way of thinking that uh, exists within – under authoritarian regimes is incredibly fine-tuned to surviving through this. Hmm. Like, I can... Like, well, Matt is always afraid of me going podcasts and talking about politics. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. You might be bad at this. I am phenomenal at this. <laughs> I am phenomenal. Uh, you, and there's no, like... It, but so... Let's say an old Facebook. I don't have Facebook anymore, but uh, not really. And an old Facebook post shows up. Or oh, Ilya said something nasty about this person. My defense is, I did. I meant it against that person. I did not mean it to offend anyone else. They're the ones who made it a drive-by. I was bitter and drunk. That is an understandable situation. Bitter and drunk is a great defense against a lot of personal insults. <laughs> I think right. it's a great. I think uh, to a certain degree, to a certain degree, bitter and drunk is a good is, is a good. No, no, no. Let's say, let's say I use a bad word on okay. you, the F word, N word, whatever. Right? Okay. Like in a pers- in personal messages, and you choose to reveal those, right? And I say, yeah, should not have used that word right now, but I did, and the reason why I did because I understand how bad the word is, and I wanted to use the worst word I know against that bastard because they were a bastard and I wanted to hurt them. I wanted to be mean to them. That's precisely why I used it. I understand that the word is bad and it was a personal communication because that person is terrible and I wanted to use the most terrible expressions I know. Right? Uh, I, the Second Amendment not only pertains to the right to bear physical arms, but also bad words in private communication, doesn't it? <laughs> I guess. I guess if you really want to, if you really want to go there. So here's all right. So we're going to get back to it. Go on. You're dealing with high school. Are you still making art? Are you still yes, learning art? Uh, in fact, I think like, I might get the numbers uh, wrong. I might get the numbers Fine. wrong. So no don't problem. get me. Uh, I think I used to pay after high school uh, about. To stress out about paying two hundred twenty-five or two hundred seventy-five dollars per semester of college. Why? Because I got so many scholarships for painting. Wow. I just there, there was a bunch of grants that just come to you as cash. Right. Right. And my one of the teachers uh, submitted me to a bunch of those. So I had like, uh, and I also had bright futures and all kinds of other trash like that that I don't remember the names of. Uh, but for, in, if you. When I was in Florida, you could go to high school in Florida, and as long as you're not a dumbass, college is free. You have you have to choose to play less video games for a little bit and like study for an extra hour at home, and you can go to college for free or for the price of ten fill-ups of your car. You know, to, if you str- I was stressed out. I was stressed out at the moment that I had to pay $275 for the semester instead of $225. I was stressed out about that. 
Really? Like in undergraduate. Why? Like because you well, felt like you needed to get that you needed to have more you needed to have more No 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 no. Because last semester I paid two hundred and twenty five dollars and this semester is is fifty dollars more. I thought it's oh college is expensive, it's two hundred something dollars. And then I go to graduate school and then my eyes were open. So uh, when you were in college what was your focus in your paintings? Well, where were your? Because when I look at your work, especially not only the paintings. I mean, your paintings are so. I can't help but think of you know the Flemish style of Van Eyck and and this very technical uh, proficiency that I feel that you've translated over into what you're doing now. So, uh, I was perhaps out of my own foolishness and. Uh, and impressionability. I was from a very young age fascinated with surrealists. Now I understand that this wow. the, the surrealism is a little bit of a trick, and it's like it, once you solve the trick, it's not as impressive. But I wasn't uh, fascinated by surrealists. Like that's a mistake on my life that like I admit to. Uh, so. I was always wanted to be like Rene Magritte, uh, obviously Salvador Dali, so on and so forth, right? right. Like Mata. And I try to carry over the eeriness that's executed through a technical capability uh, into my artwork. Now, you can say that uh, surrealism is perhaps not the most intellectual of artistic styles, and right now I probably would agree with you. But at the time, you know, you're a teen, right? Well, like if you if the addiction you have is surrealism, uh, you're like as a parent, you did not do too bad, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, agree. I know what you're saying. My uh, father was not pushing me into surrealism, by the way. Yeah, yeah. but like. I, I just I was personally fascinated. I, I can say that I visited every single major museum of Salvador Dali hmm. in the world. Like so, I've been to Figueres, I've been to the Gala Castle, and the third one was the one uh, the Dali Museum in uh, Saint Petersburg, uh, Florida, or like on the border of Saint Petersburg, Florida, town. Right. So like the the three major permanent museums of Salvador Dali: Figueres, uh, Gala Castle. And like I've absorbed a lot of that, and and that is also perhaps uh, what I took from surreal from Dali most. I think also the appreciation for being an eccentric too. So hmm. like that's probably more valuable than the entire artistic style. Hmm. Um, but I was fascinated with that. But I also knew from the start that it is. A losing proposition to say in art that do whatever you want, it's amazing, without huge, technical knowledge. Huge. I, that is the one thing you said that I am like a zillion times with you. Well, the parallel I have is like, okay, if it's true that within a discipline, oh, do whatever you want, it's all going to be amazing. It's be who you are, be creative, right? Okay. Like, sounds great, sounds inspirational, but it's incredibly damaging. Here's why it's damaging. Try telling that to a surgeon. You don't have to study, you don't have to, like, memorize anything, right. you don't have to be technically proficient. Go ahead, operate on my kid. You're right. right? 
Yeah. Well, someone will say, well, that it does it totally different because one is lives at stake and the other one is less serious. Yeah. But, that's really. precise, but that's precisely my point. The only reason why you think there's a difference is because one you think is serious and the other one is not. It's, it's not because the dynamic is different. It's because one you you dismiss off that art is not as important. The problem is, I think art is more important than, let's say, surgery to a certain extent. Because if you've seen Michelangelo's La Pieta, which is in St. Peter's and Vatican, uh, you will realize that millions of righteous tears have been shed at the present of that one thing. And that is the one thing that is permanent. Art. Because it's a, it, it is the... Okay, so if we look at mythology, right? Uh, every single culture has a myth where an artist is punished by the gods for his or her excellence. The uh, myth of Arachne in ancient Greece, she competed against Athena in weaving, but she was not only as good as the gods, but also made fun of the gods and her tapestries, and she was forever condemned to weave her webs in the corners, in the dark corners, by being turned into a spider. If you look at the uh, Iranian carpet weavers or Afghani carpet weavers who purposefully introduce errors into the carpets because they are not supposed to compete with God, uh, you go into the philosophy of Buddhist art that nothing is perfect from the beginning and valuing imperfection. So if you look at that, the artist is the only person who bridges the gap between the mortal and the divine, and but their position is her- uh, heretical to begin with because... Uh, if they're the ones who are bridging the gap between the mortal body and the divine inspiration, at the same time, they're in the precarious position that they're the only ones who can anger the gods. And therefore, they're the first ones to suffer. So they, cre- they, they are the only thing that justifies human existence because they're the thing that creates permanent value. And yet they're, at the same time, the first thing to go to the chopping block when a revolution happens. So you also hold artists at a much higher importance, uh, cultural importance. Correct. Correct. I don't. Yeah, here's why. Here's why. What do you know of ancient Egypt? Nothing. Except pyramids. I know pyramids. Except, okay, pyramids. Except and then the, 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 one except thing. the, the, the hieroglyphics. I remember, the I know only the thing you know about ancient Egypt, and the only reason why we even give a fuck about ancient Egypt, is because tremendous art was left from. That was the only way for the people who are dead for the past 3,000 years or so to actually talk to us. They, their art is the only thing that gives them a second life. Hmm. What do you know about ancient Greeks? Same shit. Or also literature, but literature is art, you know. Uh, what do you know about... Like, so, once again, like the, the only claim to immortality that a civilization has is its art. And it will be judged only by how novel magnificent or advanced the art is hmm. because once we once we all collapse from global warming and everything will be flooded the only thing that will remain from us that people will give a fuck about is the sculptures and the monuments that will that some other civilization will dig up from the depth of the ocean they will already have the same boats we had all oh, how cute they they also already had the uh, diesel engine of internal combustion that killed them, for example, right? Stuff like that. That, that will be a cute thing, just like we consider it 
kind of cute that ancient Egyptian new couple cultural uh, calculus tricks. So how do you rationalize this fe- the, the feeling you have towards especially ancient ancient art and sculpture and and this with your love for you know Magritte is known for uh, this is not this is a pipe the the, the pipe floating in the air uh, and this how do you rationalize right I was just saying that for I was that that's the that's the his one of his more well, famous it's a, it's a conversation and, it's a right. conversation. Right? Okay. Art is a constant conversation because if it's not a conversation, it's it's dead. Sorry for the sound. I just corrected that's my fine. You're all right. You're all right. You're all right. Uh, that's one thing. And uh, let's say I don't think Rene Magritte is his art stands on its own. Very right. Like that's an objective, like objective uh, thing I can say about my opinion. But I know for a fact that he was a fantastic foundation for other. Right, so some art might not be great in itself, but it redeems itself against the sin of mediocrity by being the first foothold for someone great. I love it. Right? Yeah. So now the other thing is why do I value traditional classical art? Um, when I made the Inquisitor, they I was seeing the Cathedral of Notre Dame, which I visited earlier, like like way earlier, uh, burning down, right? Which was tragic. The more tragic thing to me was the discussion about restoring the Cathedral of Notre Dame. How are we going to use new 3D printed uh, concrete blocks and blah, blah, blah. Well, it's not the same. The meaning of the artwork so, if you know anything about how medieval cities created cathedrals, right? Everyone in the city had a role. It was the entire ca- cathedral or ecclesia means community gather, right? It's everyone's together. So, if the bread makers, the bakers would make bread, a, a certain proportion of the bread specifically for the people who were building the cathedral. The blacksmith would know that a certain proportion of the nails they're making are for the cathedral. Like the uh, woodcutters were making scaffolding. The entire community dedicated substantial amount of resources to this one project that a lot of them will never see finished in their lifetime because it took, you know, like 50, 90 years to complete it, you know. So it was the community gathered. It was done by hand through sweat and sacrifice uh, through embodied skill, the hands of the artists, the stone carvers would feel the rock crumbling and revealing the shape hidden within. And that's the meaning of the cathedral, something made by human hands, by the community itself, rather than by, by a machine 3D printed. And the fact is, the, the fact that the French government was considering using modern technology to restore this means that it already is losing the most important thing that makes that cathedral valuable outside of like some religious symbolism whatever like is the fact that it's what is left from the living hands right. of someone who died 500 years ago and the only way to properly restore it is to do every single thing by hand again so you will be resurrected through your labor 500 years from now upon every glance, every photograph the next person will take. 
This is interesting to me because I see this connection between your your work as your painting. Um, looking at your drawings, if you can go to Slavic Smith on Instagram, you can see a lot of the drawings, the technical proficiency. Your last thing that you said about regards to the importance of technical proficiency for an artist and how you know the I, I love I agree with you that the idea of um, of art just being creative isn't enough. I actually wanted to just make a point that I felt always my sculpture. Team Teacher was far more whimsical, and I was a, a vi- I was a victim of his style. I was a victim of his style, and less in regards to the greater good of making sculpture. But, but regardless, in regards to your work, I see this this incredible importance to um, traditional ways in which you make your knives, your your swords, traditional ways in which you construct your steel, traditional ways in which you do your paintings, the technical proficiency. And I, I can feel it based on what you were saying in regards to the heretic and Notre Dame, the importance of the historical accuracy of your construction. Okay. It, it is an ethical obligation to do so the way I see it. So are you familiar with Mongolian throat singing? Yes, I am. That four, the four voice, that four throat voice. Is that the ring? Is that the? Were you giving me the real shit? Well, I guess I don't know. One more time. One more time. I didn't hear you. I I can't do it. Like I just, I just. um, Anyway, um, I know what you're talking about. So you know how it incorporates sounds of nature. Right? No, that's what I don't it's, know. it's based on the sounds of nature, the sounds of birds, the sounds of the mountains, the avalanches. That's what it is. The reason why Mongolian throat singing uh, is practiced today in the region is that when a singer calls out to the mountains and hears the echo back, it is the same sound that that mountain has heard for generations prior. So he's giving the voice his own breath to the people who no longer can. It is the idea of reincarnation and resurrection through practice. You, as a human being who is alive now, are merely the mediating factor. You're not important because your only job is to dance the same dance that has been danced before so the people who are dead can live again. Hmm. Right, and that—that's—that's uh, that's also the idea of, for example, Japanese bladesmithing. That's why they have schools, and that's why they share names across generations, and that's why they're incredibly strict in maintaining the style of the school. Because you're a different person, there will be individuality anyway. You can't get rid of it, so don't even focus on it. It will always be there. But the idea is that there's an ethical obligation. It's a matter of life or death because you're giving new life to the dead when you're doing. It. Right. I understand. And carrying it and allowing the next person after you to know, to think of it that way, and to be able to dance the same dance. So So that the footprints are preserved. This is surprisingly not narcissistic. Yeah, it sounds like when I, when I try to like do the short version of this garbage, people are like, oh, you're full of it. Like, yeah, okay, I guess, but it's not, it's not like, no, it's very pure. It, 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 that's why we perform the same ballet or the same opera all the time, right? Not because the composition itself is great, which it is, but it also is you get to see the people who wrote it 
living you're giving them the same right you get to see through their eyes it's just, it's you get to hear through their ears and it allows for even so little of their subjectivity and subjectivity means being a personal lived person of being a human being to live again once like once more like that's the, the only purpose of it i'm fascinated see in my mind i would describe this as you were compelled to make what you make and create what you create you're, it would, I would say it would be a compulsion, but you refer to it more as an ethical obligation. Well, compulsion, uh, those two can exist simultaneously. So, but they're totally uh, different. They're totally different. I, I'm so talent compels a person, right? If you have a talent for hearing music and making music, you cannot do otherwise except hearing it with its full tonality, or pick up a guitar and just needing. To have the specific sound, right? That's talent from birth. We highly heritable, right? Talent compels you to try to see or feel the world a certain way and express yourself a certain way. Not the talent, but your re- reaction to your own talent. But okay, so once you start playing the game of talent and disciplines and art or science or whatever, once you step onto that treadmill. And you start running. That the fact that the tra- once you realize the treadmill exists creates an ethical obligation. Hmm. Once, See, I... once you know what it is, once you realize what running is, you realize that there's a direction to running. I I, I feel I'm I'm in, I'm fascinated by your 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 concept can, of consider the following what. If if you have an idea of height, like the concept of height, you already know that a mountain is tall and that it's up. Yes. Yes. Well, it, it's that kind of an idea. Like a very basic rudimentary concept contains within it packed a whole slew of meanings and obligations themselves. Like the idea of let's say, a moral good contains already within it that you should do it. Like, whatever the moral good is, it could be something weird, like an alien civilization could have, like, we have to have the most zinc in the world. That could be the idea of the moral good, right? Like, an alien civilization can have that. But once they have the idea that it's good, you have to maximize it. You have to act upon it. Okay. The same thing with art and beauty and uh, other weird obligations. So... In regards to, I mean, it's your. You, I love that you say that it, this is your ethical obligation. And In the sense that that's what it means to have a good life. Uh, the science of ethics is the science of a good life, going from uh, Plato and Aristotle. So, how do you rationalize? So, in regards to that, you're extraordinarily talented. You're obviously well spoken, and you're, you're talented in a number of disciplines. You know, the interesting thing is, a lot of people would say something like, "Wow, you can you can paint and you can forge swords." They, there, there's this con, there's this mindset, especially with Americans, that there that everything isn't the same. I always have felt that you know, it's it's always discipline and technique and then you're executing it and whether or not you're making this you're making that it's all relatively coming from the same place how do you rationalize all of that in regards to your talent and everything well, like that? let's bring it back to Nietzsche go ahead, right? go ahead. let's bring, let's bring it back. Nietzsche, Nietzsche said about slave morality 
that so there are certain kinds of intellectual, rather anti-intellectual currents that try to stomp down even the idea of excellence. That excellence is not an obligation, but rather a privilege, right? Which excellence is, is a privilege. Like, that's the slave morality talking about. Like, okay. it's not that you're obligated to excel or be excellent. It's that people who are excellent are somehow privileged, which is slave yeah. morality, right? I, I think like, so. Back to me. Well, consider the following. Oh, you can uh, solve differential equations and you can paint? Well, you know, most artists I know are not very mathematically fine, you know. Well, it only, that kind of mentality, when it replicates itself throughout a series of iter cultural iterations within a social group, merely says, uh, is a shaming factor against people who can do both, because then there's something wrong with them, and merely is saying, oh, it's okay if, you're not a, if you don't do math very well, Johnny, you can just doodle on the wall, and it doesn't matter if you're good at doodling, because anything you do, Johnny, is very good. Like, it's that kind of... It actually keeps people down. This idea. Well, now, forging swords is navigating yourself in space given the idea you have in your head. Right? Right. Well, painting is the same thing. You actually have yeah. one less dimension to deal with. Uh, or, or, but it all comes from the same place. Well, it, it is actually... The, it, it is the same... Uh, brain function. It's not that it comes from right. the same place. It's like, we know that it's the same brain function. We have PET scans and CAT scans that say that it's the same brain function. Yeah, that's basically what I mean, what I was trying to get at is that I, I don't really, when I do whatever I'm doing, I always see that the mindset's exactly the same. I don't really Correct. I don't separate myself out based on what I'm doing. Um, so at what point and I know we're getting into it, what point do you get involved with metalworking? So, all right. Uh, this is going to have to be a two-parter, by the way. We're going to have to. I'm going to have to get you back on in the fall, and we're going to have to keep going because, I mean, we're an hour and a half in, and I'm, we're still in Florida. So I, mean, I got to. Okay. So, okay. The the metal work I was involved in already in Russia because we actually had shop class, and some of the shop class taught us basics about about blacksmithing. We actually never did any of it, but we knew about it and like lathe turning and milling and so on and so forth. And that's middle school Russia. Right. And then I was involved Middle in Russia. Wow. Yeah, well, uh, but uh, I was involved with a reenactors group, and the uh, European reenactors groups often enough get subsidies from the government, uh, and therefore they have to be historically accurate and a little bit more academic. So I would start making armor and all kinds of things like that, including the receiving an education in art that helps. So I was already involved with, uh, I would call now rudimentary metalworking. Uh, it's not as rudimentary, but now I call it rudimentary metalworking. And then I moved to the United States, once again found out a quasi-medieval reenactors group in the United States and started trading uh, favors for some armor making, so on and so forth. So I, I was already doing that kind of stuff. Uh, and then uh, when I go to graduate school in the United States, uh, I was supposed to be a tutor, like teaching people English composition, mathematics, all kinds of, you know, whatever people struggling with. Signed up, they never gave me a job. Uh, and after a while, I had to uh, 
hit up Carrie Sagmer, for whom I did a demo of uh, sculpting a human face, uh, modeling a human face from sheet metal. How did you uh, find something... Carrie? So oh, Carrie was... Facebook, oh. I think it's Facebook. Like, uh, Facebook uh, gives a little bit and takes away a lot. So wait uh, a second, wait a second. So you're still in Florida, and then you reach no, out to... No, 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 no. That's, uh, I, I did a short thing. After Florida, I had to move to D.C. for graduate school. Okay. So in graduate school in D.C., you reach out to Carrie Stagmer, who's Matt's yeah. brother, well, who owns Baltimore. Yeah, I reach out to him, uh, and then he invites me to one of his hammerings, where I show how to make a human face that's made from sheet metal. Repose. Yes, kind of a hot. In that case, more hot raising. But okay. Uh, and then time flies by. I supposedly get a job as a tutor. Okay, whatever tutor. But then they don't give me any actual fucking work. You know, bills pile up, and they don't actually give me work. But it's all weird. Toot, all tutor, no toot. Yeah, like I wrote them an angry email like a year later, and they said, "Oh yeah, well we forgot." Basically, that was their response. Which, well, very professional, by the way. Uh. And I asked him, like, look, can I use your workshop? Like, uh, some people are interested in armor. Uh, and he said yes, to which I'm, to this day, very grateful, by the way, that he provided me a space to work in. So I would make armor for, like, uh, H&B people, Battle of Nations, whatever, right? Uh, and that's how I paid some of my bills. And slowly I got into making more swords because... Occasionally, the company has too much work, and they're like, you, you do this, this, and this, right? So I got slowly involved with swords, because I started out as an armor. And then uh, the YouTube show that is on the channel that I will not name, that is ends up in Reforged, uh, started out, and uh, it was all hands on deck. And that got me more and more into the idea that, well, if you're doing a job for the public, you should be as competent as is humanly possible for you, right? Because yeah, you're uh, voluntarily, because you, you can always not do it, but since you're doing it, you have to set up a minimum standard. So I started researching more and more, uh, like armoring techniques, blacksmithing techniques, with at least the very purpose of explaining them to the audience in a comprehensible way but without sacrificing too much of the technical uh, content. Question for you, question for you. At this point, at this point, I mean, obviously when you were younger, you had art teachers and you had instructors. When you were learning about these forging techniques and making swords and this stuff, had you had any teachers? Were you learning it on your own? Well, I was basically at the time learning it on my own. But remember, if you already have a background in sculpture and painting, all it is is just learning a new medium. You're not right. actually learning too much new, surprising new stuff. You're just learning the limitations of the medium. I agree. Yeah, that makes a right? lot of so sense. So, like, if you know how to carve marble, uh, like Michelangelo, carving steel or carving copper. It's like, okay, well, I know this bitch bends instead of crumbles. Okay, now right. that we're used to that after the first couple of weeks, it's the same stuff. So at this point, you're starting to get, you're starting to dive more deeply in the historical uh, importance of I, the builds. Okay, so I, by then, already had uh, an 
art history degree, a philosophy degree, and an Asian studies degree. So the historical importance of items uh, and techniques was already there. I just had to specify it uh, apropos whatever the current project is. And unfortunately, the current project is almost always some silly cartoon thing. So when I found it as a kind of obligation when there is something, the minimal amount, minuscule, infinitesimal uh, opportunity to say something valuable uh, to the audience, I try to take that opportunity. Was it hard when you were doing these, being on these shows and being on these videos and being on these projects, when you had this ethical obligation to be making stuff where you're reincarnating the voice and the technique of former at that people. Time, at that time, I did not think of it that way. Okay. So, no, it was not hard. So, when they were doing, so, okay, so, so when they were, so when they were doing like SpongeBob. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, oh, well, okay, so SpongeBob, I expressly said, I'm not showing my fucking face in that shit whatsoever. Yeah. Like, that is ridiculous. So, I, I have like, and, a visceral aesthetic reaction of repulsiveness towards SpongeBob and everything. I can't. I can't even handle SpongeBob memes because I feel like a, 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 a an aesthetic moral nausea looking at that style. It's like it's revulsion and dismay. It's all together. It's. Uh, have you ever had uh, bad fish mixed together with bad milk? No. Okay, no. so yeah, imagine no. having that and how you would feel um, uh, gastronomically, like physically. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like that on like an emotional, quasi-spiritual level, the fact that we're doing this. Like, what as an art? Like, really? There's, there's so many things. Because by then, like when SpongeBob happened, we pretty much knew it was... Uh, All right, so just to let just to back everybody up, in in the in the show that he was on, at one point one of the bills was to make a SpongeBob spatula. Just to just to just to clean it up for the listeners, uh, they made a SpongeBob spatula, and Matt and Ilya didn't really want to be in the video, so I, they weren't. I, I expressly said they begged me to okay. like we have to show you like no, this is not. You had a chance of making something glorious because by then we actually pretty much knew that it was the last episode under the current ownership. And I said, no, I'm not. It is just not worth my time. Like, it's, it is, I will regret it five years down the line if my face is attached. So was it hard for you as a academic and as a artisan, as an artist, to be on these TV shows? Was that hard or did you well, enjoy it? Okay, so the, uh, I, like, as an academic, Matt is also an academic. He is has two GEDs and trying to complete his third one. Uh, that was a joke, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a blasted old poor Matt. Poor Matt sent me a nice message today, too. Uh, so. uh, uh, but no, like, yes, it is. Uh, because the problem I was having, especially with TV stuff, is that certain things are important enough that you cannot skew the truth for the purpose of publicity right certain things are first of all religious objects and making an episode about them how how they smash through blah 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 like it's not the important part about it. 
Like, uh, same thing, like, let's say the, uh, Indonesian cre- crisp blades or, uh, Filipino collis, right? Like, the, the, yeah. you, you know the one I'm I know talking, what you're right? talking it's, about. It's primarily a religious object. The, the whole beauty of it is the religious significance and the, uh, class significance of it. It's not, like, as a weapon, it's garbage. Like, it just is. Right? Because it's not supposed to be a weapon. It's supposed to be something more. It's a permanent image that persists through several physical iterations that says something about culture, and it's a way of the culture to speak to itself about its own tradition. That's the valuable part about the crisp blade. It's not the damage it does. Because, like, uh, honestly, a shovel that uh, does more is more effective as a weapon than the crisp. Like it's it's clearly not the main thing about. It. Did you it's, feel an, an obligation to kind of point these things out in your videos? Yes, I know now yeah. if that works. You do a yeah. lot of okay. Your... So about TV stuff, the producers wanted, but tell us how the curvy blade does more damage and blah 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 blah. Like no, that's not the point. It's a it has spiritual religious significance to those people. That's why they have it. That's why there's I, like twenty different types of pattern to Chris Blade Damascus, and that's why it's made a certain way. That's why the guard is looks like it's an integral, but the guard there's a clear seam with the guard, and it's held by a silver wire on the side. That's why it has the shape of a beast, which has religious significance in their culture. No. And I try to stir them, like, the main thing about this weapon is that it conveys something about the culture through time, and it's a communicative tool that allows people to have a specific type of identity, right? And they're like, no, we, we want to hear about like the damage and how sharp it is. Well, like, come on, what the fuck are you guys talking about? <laughs> I was but, thinking about this actually quite a bit over the last week preparing for you because what I think, and I thought about this particularly, and I know that you were on Forge and Fire. I know it was a terrible experience for you. Okay. What fascinates me is is the fact that it's almost as if you can't really blame the people who are making these shows because you have yes, to blame... Yes, I can. I think you can blame the audience, the, 100% the, lack of, the lack of education of the audience and what they find to be entertaining or not. No, yeah, I totally fucking can't. And here's why I fucking can't. <laughs> okay. First of all, like, when I was on Forge and Fire, right? Like, here's... You, you can... They were... The, one of the questions I experienced was basically a version of how badly do you need the money. But first of all, you don't need to ask a person how poor are you and how hungry you will be if you don't win, which is a version of the question, how badly do you need money? Right. Like, that's indecent, right? <clears throat> so right. it's a constant... <clears throat> Sorry. So it's a conscious choice to frame a question like that for entertainment purposes. Right? I can totally blame a person for that. I can... Uh, there are other shows in, all over the world that accent the dedication and uh, artistic rigor and studiousness of people who are making art, including knives, including blades. And they're just as popular, and maybe even slightly less popular, but they're quite, as pop- quite popular, and they don't do the drama. 
but there was a constant choice for drama. But History Channel is always a channel of rednecks doing things, and it appeals to the lowest common denominator or the greatest well, common factor. But, but you understand that, I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, the whole point is that they know what they need, the numbers that they need in order no. to buy it. No, <laughs> no, no. I, 100% wrong. Like, here's why. Here's why. If it would have been forged in fire, just go ahead, go ahead. The same way, but they would have not focused on the drama, but focused uh, just like those Nova documentaries, the BBC documentaries. Yeah, yeah. Every episode would have been like that, right? They could have done that. They have enough budget and blah blah blah. It would have been just as popular because See, there's nothing I, else like it. Because there's nothing else like it on TV. Okay? I disagree for, to the, only this reason because Peter Ross used to be on PBS for a long time, one of the best American blacksmiths doing traditional colonial ironwork. And nobody knows who he is because people, are, or at least most people, don't know who he is because it wasn't interesting to the to the average viewer. I tend to believe that these shows stay around as long as they do. No, is because <laughs> I, 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 you asked me about blame. You asked me about blame. You never asked me about. Uh, but it's the same. No, it, it isn't. Let's uh, let's put it like that. Do you have kids? Yes. Okay. If what would you tell me if I voluntarily sell your kids some heroin? What would I tell you? Yeah. I would not tell you anything. I would talk to my child. Yeah, but if I continuously sell your kids heroin. But you like you, you what would you think of it? Because you can't, I'm, you can't I'm, look you can't force I'm my for, kid to buy you can't force my kid to you can't force selling heroin to my kid if I'm preventing my kid from buying the heroin from you. You you're not with your kid at least fifty percent of the kid. Oh, you can't. But, you, I mean, I'm telling you now. I know you're on the. Here, I know you're on the street trying to sell my kid. I'm going to make sure my kid don't buy the, no heroin from you. Here's, here's the point. Here's the yeah. basic point. Come on, right? Man. Go ahead. Uh, I'm providing to individuals who have very limited understanding of what the subject matter is the most addictive and anti-intellectual version of the thing. And I'm making a constant choice to it. I could have done otherwise. The fact that heroin sells great. As soon as you try it, you want more, <laughs> right? It's great. It's a no, perfect. Right. It's a perfect business model. We're, yep. we're having a basically a giant like continuation for the past three years of a giant lawsuit, basically about heroin. It called it's called something else, but it's heroin, right? It's an opiate. It's heroin. Yeah. No, I right? agree with you. Like it's great. It's a great business model. Can you blame the drug companies that they have this perfect product? That just sells itself, and they're advertising it. But it's the same kind of argument. But yes, you can. Just because the product is perfect and is addictive, and it becomes instantly popular as soon as people try it, because that's how heroin is, doesn't mean that the people selling it are not to blame. They're exactly to blame. Because- but wait a second. But wait a second. There's no. But you. But you're not giving any responsibility to the to to the to the to the, to the people they're marketed to. There's yeah, no, there's no, there's no, so then, then you, I, what I was getting at in the beginning was you have to, you, you're talking about a, a, a viewership who's relatively uneducated in regards to what they're trying, what they should that, be, or what you're wanting them to be interested in watching. That's fine. The responsibility they have and on which they will either rise or fall, right, is the framework of the thing they need satisfied. 
right? Okay. That it's uh, it's a very abstract thing. That it's an easy easy illustration. Uh, if I know that I have an X amount of random values, but all of them need to be satisfied. One of them is I want to listen to really good 19th century opera once in a while, right? That is part of the framework I need satisfied. And I'm responsible for having habituated in myself a certain uh, sensibility, a certain uh, direction of um, intellectual literature I like. For example, uh, I love Koji Nishitani. Um, I love... Uh, he's uh, a response to Heidegger from Japan. They were writing at the same time, uh, response to phenomenology and existentialism, but it's the Japanese response to Western scholarship on top. Uh, there's an interesting story about how a whole bunch of Japanese scholars pulled funding so that one of them could go study in the West and reply to Western uh, philosophy, we- blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. So I love his way of writing, right? So okay. I'm responsible for this tastes and sensibilities that I have habituated in myself. But once I have habituated those sensibilities, those desires and values that I already have, they just act themselves out. I don't have to kind of do anything about them because that's what it means to have those basic desires in you. They act themselves out in the world. I don't play, uh, I don't really put much responsibility on the viewers of garbage shows, let's call them like that, uh, for viewing them, because uh, that, that's what people who have that kind of taste do. I don't blame a person who uh, is addicted to Burger King for buying Burger King. I'm blaming them for becoming addicted to Burger King, right? I, well, here, here's what I'm going to just say in regards to this, in regards to my family and stuff like that. When I was a kid, on Saturday mornings, I used to like watching car- Saturday morning cartoons, which my dad would walk into the room, look at me in disgust, and say, oh, you're watching cartoonies. Then he would grab me, tell me to get my clothes on, he'd take me to the museum, and he would say, you need culture. And he, he was did, right. He didn't blame the cartoons, and he didn't blame the TV shows. He took his own responsibility to get me from watching the cartoonies his, and going to get some culture. His opinion would have been different if you would have gotten an invitation or recruited to be one of the cartoonies <laughs> for a little bit. I think you're right. Okay, so that, that's a slight difference. Okay. Right? And with competition reality shows, the, the idea is that every single viewer potentially sees themselves, oh, I might compete, I might do this next year, Ooh. Like that kind of thing. There's like there's an incessant little dwarf in the back of the mind that's gnawing on them or giggling, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, it's a very interesting thing you said about your father and saying you need culture. When I was growing up in Russia, I was prohibited from viewing uh, pop culture movies, uh, not based on the fact that they were violent or there was too much sex. That was not the problem. The problem was whether they were art or not art. So I was allowed from age like 11, 9 to view, uh, see movies with full, like, full nudity, actual sexual, damn near porn uh, scenes, so long as they were of artistic merit. I got you. Right? 
that if it didn't have artistic merit, doesn't matter how tame it is, you're not allowed to watch it because it's poison. Because in the earliest age uh, time of your development, that's when you establish a sense of taste. And taste uh, and aesthetics, uh, I've just now realized how much prior to ethics and politics it should be. It's interesting that you say that because my father wouldn't let me listen to popular music because he felt that it would make me more uh, rebellious towards him. Yeah, I don't, like, uh, so, the rebellion, I, I don't see that, like, as... Or insubordinate. That... Insubordinate. So, insubordinate. growing up, uh, my mother did the fall. I was not allowed to get B's. A B was worse than an F. So, it's it was the exact, like, uh, Americans have a stereotype about Asian families, that's exactly what was my mother. I was only allowed to get an A. A minus if I had a headache. But an F was better than a B. Because you didn't care at all. No. Because the amount of stuff you have to do at uh, school, like the amount of knowledge you get at school, uh, you have to try hard to get an F. You have to be a rebel, you have to be an eccentric, you have to be an artist or an actor to manage to get a fucking F. And B, you're mediocre, so you're nothing. You're not a scientist, you're not an artist, you're just mediocre. That's it. You just sweep the floors for the rest of your life. Uh, so you, your job and uh, uh, human value in culture is about the same as a Roomba. If you get a B, <laughs> you're mediocre at best. You're the, you know, do you like artichokes? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, uh, you only like artichokes when you're not having them. When you actually get artichokes, they're kind of mediocre. They're like they're obnoxious to eat. They're messy, and the taste is not quite as good as you kind of you know like. They're like eh, I guess it's 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 okay. It's like it's the celery and artichoke getting a B. <laughs> right, you're mediocre. And mediocrity is worse than, any, than anything. Artichokes are mediocre. If you if you have a mental disability, right? Go ahead. And can I close cannot... my eyes again? Is this going to be? Is, I, okay, I'm closing my eyes. Am I, is there is there anybody with like any savants in the, in this in this experiment? No, no. Okay, like, okay, if, okay, if someone okay. if someone has a mental disability and that's why they don't get good grades, but they have a mental disability, right? That that's like. Let's put it like that. Fate has not dealt them a decent card, given the stand, given how our culture and science and whatever exists, right? Okay. All right. That's like, that's one thing. But if you are dealt all the necessary cards in life to play, and you end up being mediocre, that's worse than, in spite of all the cards you have. Just throw him on the ground and say, fuck it, I'm going to be a crackhead for the rest of my life. But wait a and second. And rob stores. Like, there's if... that, a, 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 a rebellious romance to it, kind of like Bukowski's uh, literature to, like, being an F student and saying, fuck it. Right? You, uh, but mediocre, what, like, what, what, like, no. But if mediocre and happy, isn't that okay? I don't care about happy. And there we have it. No, I don't care. Like, what do you mean by happiness? I mean, because I, I 100% can tell you, you don't know what happiness is. 
I you mean, know how I know you don't know what happiness actually is? Tell me. Because for 3,000 years, people couldn't identify happiness. It's like, it's the one thing people don't know what it is. There's a, there's a body, 3,000 years of literature about happiness, and no one can agree on it. So you cannot possibly know what, what happiness is. You might have an experience of being happy, but you don't know what it is. Are you happy? Depends. No, what depends? No, I, Are you I happy? Right now I am. Yeah. But that that but I might be confusing but the idea you know? of being but I might be confusing uh uh the concept of being joyous, content and happy. So if we mean uh by happy something like eudaimonia, uh like in ancient Greek thought. And eudaimonia only happens when you are uh, participating in society as a f- agent who is free. So it's it, it is a type of public happiness that comes about from living a good life in public. I might be happy when I'm making art in that sense because I'm engaging in a activity where I'm a free... When I'm making art, I'm free because I'm making decisions that are intellectual, artistic. I'm operating at the apex of my capabilities so i'm fully free in that moment right but when i'm you know uh like cleaning uh the room or responding to youtube comments i'm not really uh free i'm not a free agent i'm just doing some mediocre mechanical thing responding to mediocre people about mediocre stuff like so i'm not free because there's no foundation for freedom and if there's no foundation for freedom you by definition if we're using the ancient greek definition of happiness cannot be happy now there's an asian reply to that that happiness is uh, a state of the soul and is in those very everyday activities that you find enlightenment and enlightenment itself is a type of happiness and sure maybe but we're talking about different types of happiness so now all of a sudden you ask me if i'm happy and we're discovering that there are all kinds of diametrically opposed types of happinesses that have nothing to do with joy and there we have it Ilya alexiev that's that you've said it all all right all right i hope to yeah, I have ended on a more conclusive part of the podcast. But we, now that I know how to use the microphone, maybe we'll do it again. We are going to do it again because we barely scratched the surface. Ilya is on Instagram. Slavic Smith, you know, he's got a YouTube channel with Matt. I already talked to Matt today. I think the next move is we're going to get the both of you on at the same time. That ought to be fun. We got we have some some things to talk about. Uh, go follow. Go follow Ilya Slavic Smith on, on on Instagram. Go check out their what their YouTube channel that works. Subscribe, watch their videos. I will highly suggest you watch the video where he's showing you the right way to forge a bevel. That was an eye opener. We didn't get to that today. We'll get there's to gonna that be a se- there's gonna be a second one with all the physics and calculus and equations. We're gonna record that. I'm going to link that particular video. It's how you forge the correct way to forge a bevel, and he uses the instructions of how he uses it with wood, and it's extraordinarily interesting and, and definitely worth you watching. I'm going to link up a number of the videos. Ilya, thank you. You're a fascinating guy. We got to do this again. I want to get you on with Matt. I want to get you on again. You're, you're, you're a very fascinating individual. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. I'm glad it was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Listen. Go follow him and go follow the Full Blast podcast on Instagram. Get, help me out. Send some, you know, send some good stuff our way. 
do the, uh, you know, subscribe and leave a review. It helps me out. Go uh, support uh, AK Interactive, akinteractive.com uh, slash full blast. Go get some Axe Wax, Axe Wax. Dot us get yourself full blast 10 gives you 10 percent off and guys we're going to see you next week i'm going to tell you who we got coming up i talked to fingal ferguson's coming up nico tavernisi is going to be in here pretty soon steve schwarzer is going to come in i just talked to him last night we got a uh, uh, leah arapach is coming back we got uh, tony atz he's coming in here we got a whole pile i'm definitely going to have Ilya and matt back on this fall i already talked to matt to this he thought it would be fun and Guys, thank you so much. Ilya, once again, you're the man. Oh, thank you. You as well. (laughs) The Full Blast Podcast is proudly sponsored by Axe Wax, an all-natural, food-safe wax for coating your handles. It can be used on your axes, your knives, or even on your boots, with the full confidence that Axe Wax is safe and durable. Furthermore, If you use the promo code FULLBLAST10, you will get a special 10% discount on your order. So go to axewax.us and get yourself some of the most luxurious wax for waxing your axe. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.